Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 264th episode the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Dan Callahan. Dan is a partner and the chief investment officer at Capasso Planning Partners, a rapidly growing independent REA based in Charleston, South Carolina, that oversees about $250 million in asset center management for 300 client households across the country that are all served virtually. What's unique with Dan, though, is the way he and his firm began with nearly zero clients, but grew substantially in client acquisition over a three-year period, especially in areas outside the local Charleston area, by outsourcing lead generation to third-party platforms. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Dan incorporates third-party lead providers like Zoe Financial, Smart Assets, Smart Advisor, and Feely Network, to name just a few, to maximize the reach of potential clients beyond his local area. How Dan highlights his firm's fee structure and flexible meeting times to position the firm to stand out in a crowded marketplace of other virtual advisory firms pushing for the same leads. And how Dan justifies the non-trivial revenue sharing and other marketing costs that it takes to buy leads by having gotten himself from zero to almost 50 million of personal client assets under management in barely three years. We also talk about how Dan's perseverance and client outreach allowed him to keep pace with larger firms despite not having a dedicated business development or marketing team. How Dan's experiences at family firms gave him opportunities early in his career to experience senior level investment and portfolio work, which led him to acquire his CFA designation, and how those experiences and his CFA work gave Dan the confidence to start and grow an advisory firm from the ground up. And be certain to listen to the end, where Dan shares how developing a financial firm from scratch involved enduring a roller coaster of fluctuations in his own satisfaction and disappointment, especially when dealing with the acceptance and rejection from prospects, why Dan feels strongly about taking risks and being vulnerable to create better career goals and overall achievements and how Dan places importance on the flexibility of meeting clients virtually to create a less stressful work-life balance for himself and his firm. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Dan Callahan. Welcome, Dan Callahan, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Hey, Michael. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here. I really appreciate you joining us, Sam, and, and and looking forward to the discussion around. You know, I feel like it's the brutally challenging topic for anybody that well, I was going to say that's starting the advisory business, but even when we've been in for a while, which is just business development, or right? like getting clients in a world where increasingly I find you know most of us cut into the advice business because we want to give advice, we want to serve people, not because we want to be uh, prospecting and cold calling or networking or all, all the different things that we have to do to get to the clients to whom we can then give advice and get paid. And you know, some of us are, are maybe just naturally wired or, or, or gifted towards business development and, and going through that process. But a lot of us are not, or at least it's not necessarily our, our favorite thing to do. And you know, in recent years, there's been this big growth of basically like lead generation services. And, and granted, there have been lead generation programs out there for advisors for a long time, but this sort of new wave of digitally based internet based lead generation services uh, uh you know smart assets smart advisor and 
uh, Zoe and Harness and Fee Only and Wiser Advisor and all these different programs out there. And to me, like it, it creates an interesting pa- new pathway around, well, what does it look like if you grow an advisory firm because you just spend some dollars to get the lead generation going? And and I know you've been through this in, in sort of a slightly different path, not starting from scratch in the industry to get going, but breaking away from a firm where you couldn't bring clients with you. So you still have to start from scratching it going and to spend a lot of time with these lead generation services. And so just excited to talk about what it looks like when, you know, I mean, some of us like will outsource investments or we're outsource para planning or outsource operations to a virtual assistant. Like, how does it work when you try to outsource lead generation? It's, it's interesting. So it, it's, it was a transition for sure. So just, you know, full disclosure, we, I hadn't used any of these systems in my past experience. So, um, you know, I've been with fee only RAs in some form or fashion since I got out of college. They were all, you know, relatively established, very local client base. Any new clients were typically very warm referrals. Uh, they'd come in the office, say that they knew a client, we'd have a meeting, you know, they would close and work with us. Nowadays, and at least for our firm, uh, the main growth engine is almost the opposite of that. It's, you know, we might find a client in California who has a specific need and and it works for us. And, you know, based on one of these lead generation systems, they find us um, and and then they're comfortable working with us remotely, which was something else that's just completely flipped the industry, in my opinion, where that maybe wasn't the case even a few years ago. I know there's there's been a lot of successful firms out there that have been remote only from day one, but I you know I think now it's just so much more welcomed from you know all client types, all ages. Uh, it's it's almost the norm uh, because of COVID. So it, that has helped us tremendously. Very cool. So so talk to us a little bit more about just how this works. Like I'd love to just dive right in. Like these third party lead generation service. Like just what are what are you using? How do they work? What are you doing in this regard to get third party services to send you clients? Yeah. So Zoe Financial is kind of the, the main partner and the one that we have worked with the longest. So I'll, I'll kind of focus on them to start because as you probably know, they all have a pretty different process. They all have a different, you know, first of all, just they're all structured differently on how they get the leads, how they disseminate them to clients, to advisors. So with Zoe specifically, you know, it all starts with a vetting process. You apply to get on the platform. It's a pretty tough process. They grill you on financial planning, investment process, philosophy, etc. And, you know, they say they do 100 interviews and five advisors, you know, get in from those interviews. So it is, it is tough. Once you're in the door there, they they do a really good job, in my opinion, of combining the personal element of what we do with their technology so that it's not just an algorithm that's matching some prospect to some advisor because of certain keywords. It's part that, and then it's part them knowing the advisors and knowing who might be a good fit and who has certain experience in different areas versus other advisors. So it's a really good combination of human and technology. And for us, it's been a really good fit because those prospects coming to us through the platform, um, we already know that they have certain needs that we might be a really good fit for. So it kind of takes the salesiness out of it, if you will. I don't feel like I'm going on a cold call when I jump on my introductory call with a new prospect. I, I know their name. I know, you know now I know like a full snapshot of their finances. I know exactly what they're looking for. I may even have notes from the Zoe team on how their discussion went with the prospects. So it just makes it really easy to kind of jump in there and learn a lot about them and have a really easy conversation right off the bat. 
All right, so I got a, I got a lot of questions about this. Just so you're framing it up. So, so it sounds like part of the process from Zoe's end is you know, they they do we'll just call it for now something on the internet that makes a stranger reach out, but they're not just funneling directly to you immediately and and instantly. They're funneling to someone on the Zoe team, and someone on the Zoe team is taking the conversation, qualifying the prospect, understanding their situation, what they're looking for. And and I guess drilling down a little bit further, like oh, oh they've got a they got a thing with stock options. You guys do work with stock options, so I'm I'm going to call up Dan's firm in particular because I know his firm's good in this space. Like, is it it's that kind of stuff? It's that kind of matching? It is, yeah. So so the prospect will typically get in their case three matches. So they'll fill out that information. Once they fill it out, someone from the Zoe team will reach out to them and and try to get more information and have a conversation with them to help all of the advisors that they were matched with. And then they'll go through three interviews. So they'll have access to our calendar. They'll schedule an introductory call. There's really no friction there. They make it super easy to do that. They have access to our calendars as part of the onboarding process. So how does that actually just work in practice? Like you make a like a, a a Calendly link thing for them that they can access directly. That's right. So they, you know, they'll be on my profile. They'll scroll down if they like what they see. My calendar is integrated right there on that screen. And then they even have the choice of video or phone call. So, you know, if they want to do a Zoom call, not only is our Calendly integrated there, but our Zoom kind of meeting room is integrated as well. So they'll click on a date, they'll pick a time. If they choose video, they immediately get kind of a a welcome email from Zoe that copies the advisor and the prospect, tells them exactly when the call is, what to expect, kind of a rough agenda. And then we'll go one step further and just reach out as quickly as we can and just send them a a nice introductory, good to meet you type email. And we look forward to talking with you Friday at 3 p.m. So I just, I want to make sure I understand how the sequence works though, because I know there are some other services out there, maybe we'll get to them in a moment, where just right clients can look through a giant list or directory of advisors, and then if they find one they like, they can click on it and schedule a meeting or click on it and go through the advisor's website and, and reach out and schedule a meeting there. So I, it sounds like that's happening in part through Zoe, because they've got their own directory of the advisors that qualify through the vetting to do the scheduling process. But then like, where does the phone call with the Zoe team fit into this? Like prospect reaches out, talks to Zoe team, then Zoe gives them a directory of advisors, and then the clients pick off that directory? Like just how does that sequence work? Yeah, great question. So my understanding is the prospect enters their information, you know, they enter their email on their phone, and they get three matches of advisors that they can look at right away before they really, they don't really have to talk to anybody at Zoe by that point if they don't want to. Once they enter that information though, that typically triggers the the Zoe team to reach out and just try to get in touch with them and, and learn as much information as they can. So it can happen without that part of the process, but I would say, you know, typically they're in touch with the prospect right after they click that button. And then they help the advisors by just placing notes like, hey, they, this person already has their estate planning done. They're really just looking for you know tax planning at the end of the year. And that stuff obviously is extremely helpful going into those phone calls. And and so you said though it like it's it's not just a technology platform. Zoe's getting to know the prospects, not not just to pass some notes and background around them, but it sounds like to to actually figure out like who's a fit for who, which prospects are a good fit for you. That's right. Oh, I guess I'm wondering like what what kinds of things are they are they asking to figure out who's a good fit? And like, do you know? I mean, like what are they doing to determine that you are a good fit? Because, you know, a lot of us say like I can, you know, 
I can work with anybody who has at least X dollars. I'm a comprehensive financial planner. Like I can I can work with anyone. So like how are how is Zoe picking you for particular things or or like which which what types of referrals do you get from them in particular and why? So I think what happens is they if they are able to get a hold of the prospect, they have kind of a good list of questioning where it, it alerts them in a lot of different ways. So so the obvious one would be if there's a very specific or like time sensitive item, like let's say they they have incentive stock options and they need to make a decision by the end of the year, just as an example. Those are kind of the obvious ones. But as they get into that conversation, they'll start to pick up on other items as well. One really good example is just fee structure. So in part of that conversation, most times they can pick up right away Like if this person is more comfortable with an AUM fee structure or usually the case is you know, they don't want an AUM fee structure. They want a flat fee. They want an hourly planner. They want a one-time assessment. You know, Nine times out of 10, the prospects will say these things to Zoe. And the reason that I think they open up so much is because you know, technically, Zoe is a, kind of an unbiased third party there. They don't really... They just want you to hire a Zoe advisor. They're not necessarily pushing for one advisor versus the other. So the prospect feels kind of like they can open up a little more. Right. Zoe doesn't need you to pick any particular advisor. They just need you to pick an advisor. So the the better the job they do creating a match that makes someone follow through and actually work with the advisor, the better it goes for Zoe. Exactly. So, you know, the fee thing's a great example because obviously... You know, there's no quicker way to kind of squash an introductory call than, you know, throwing someone on there that clearly wants an hourly assessment and you put them on a call with a firm that only does AUM and has a $500,000 minimum. Right. <laughs> that well, call's going to last 10 minutes. <laughs> right. Well, and it's, right. Obviously, it's frustrating for us as advisors as well to get leads. I mean, whether it's referrals or strangers off the internet or from a lead generation service where, you know, I work on AUM basis and I have a $500,000 minimum and I get someone who has $50,000 and just wants to pay a flat planning fee. No knock to people who want that and need that. Like if I'm an AUM advisor with a $500,000 minimum, that phone call is really not a good use of my time. Exactly. For all parties involved, right? And so the prospect gets frustrated. The advisor gets frustrated. So so in my opinion, you know, Zoe does a really good job of sorting that out at the beginning. And obviously, you know, prospects don't call up and say, I'm an AUM prospect or <laughs> I'm I'm a flat fee person, but I would love to pay me a percentage <laughs> of my net worth and assets. <laughs> so, you know, they, they do a good job of asking the right line of questions. And and I mean it's pretty fascinating. Like they can pick up on those things and then it gives us good ammo to go into those calls. And you know, I know that this person has no interest in having their portfolio managed. So I'm not going to go into some go into a call and, you know, pitch portfolio management or pitch anything really. I'm just going to have, you know, a normal kind of conversation with them, figure out what their financial planning needs are and go from there and see if we're a good fit. So then how does this work by the time a lead's getting handed off to you? I mean, I think you said it's like you'll something shows up on your calendar via Calendly or or Zoom scheduling. So presumably you get some kind of email confirmation that, you know, so-and-so so stranger has scheduled a, a prospect meeting on your, on your calendar through Zoe. So what happens next from your end? So we'll get that calendar link and that will show up. We'll have the meeting, typically 30 minutes for those introductory meetings. Um, like I said, Zoom or phone call. And for us, this is where the process kind of diverts over to the advisors versus Zoe. So Zoe is still helping the prospect after that first call, get through the pipeline, meet with their advisors and, and ideally make a decision. Even if that decision's I'm not ready to hire someone or you know they all sounded great, but I'm just not sure what I need right now. Yes or no, some kind of 
executive decision. They're helping them go through that. They're following up with the prospects. But I would say at that point, each advisor has their own system. So for us, you know, we immediately send a, a detailed follow-up email from that phone call. We'll kind of, you know, for me personally, I'll throw some notes in there of what we learned on the call, some of their goals, what they're looking for, and then just attach some, you know, deliverables on our services and anything maybe specific that came up on the call to help them out. And then ideally try to book a discovery meeting. So for us, that next step is we have a complimentary discovery meeting, which again can be Zoom or a phone call where we can really get more into the weeds on their situation, maybe provide some free advice and just kind of give them some guidance and let them experience what it's like working with us. Because, you know, part of the struggle of working through with prospects that are all over the country and, you know, are starting as like a digital prospect, if you want to call it that, I think it takes a couple meetings to really build the trust. So that second meeting for us is where we provide really good advice. We look at their situation. We basically have like a full-pledged financial planning meeting with them before they even decide, hey, this is a great fit and we want to move forward. And so in the meantime, Zoe is also following up with them just to say, you know, did you choose, did you choose Dan? Did you choose one of the other two advisors we sent you? Did you did you want to talk to some other advisors because none of these are working with you and you know we have others that we can connect you with? Exactly. And and just trying to nudge them or nurture them along. That's right. So again, it it comes off. It's very unbiased. It's very they're kind of lending the helping hand, getting them through the process to hopefully make a decision. And the best part about that is so we have the kind of the portal on our end with Zoe and we, we see these notes. We input our notes after the calls. We'll get the alert two days after the call and it says, hey, you know, I, I touched base with John and Susan. They loved your conversation. They have one more interview. They had this question and they'd like to book another time with you on this day. So a lot of times that comes from Zoe's reach out. Other times it comes from our reach out to the prospect. But it almost feels like they're kind of like a business development partner for us at that point because it helps us follow up with the clients because the pipeline can get pretty long and it's it's extremely helpful. And I'll tell you, the most helpful part about it for me is is actually getting the feedback on the, the folks that don't hire us. So we'll have... you know, oh, Because if they don't pick you... And they tell Zoe that they didn't pick you. Zoe asks why, and then they tell exactly, you exactly. Exactly. There's so many times where we have a fantastic introductory call. You know, get along great, perfect fit. It almost sounds like they're ready to hire us right then and there. And then for whatever reason, they may not. And in a lot of other systems, you know, maybe you never even find out why not, or they kind of just they ghost you, or they they just disappear. Right. Um, in this well, case, I, say, I feel like you usually don't get to find out why they why they didn't pick you, or if they do at least to me, it's often pretty simple. You know, we decided to go another direction or, you know, we just, we, we decided to work with another advisor we were talking with. Like, well, okay, I wish you luck and all the best, but like, I'd really like to know why you picked the other advisor on me. Like, I'm not, uh, I'm not even trying to be hurt. I just literally want to know, like, what did I not do or convey or show that you apparently wanted to see? And I wish I could get that feedback, but yeah, yeah, it's unique. So yeah. if you know, if I'm looking at dentists, if I move to a new city and need a dentist and I hire one, I'm probably not going to go reach out to the other two I didn't decide to go to and tell them why, right? Like <laughs> so it's a very unique aspect of the system, but it's so helpful because I'll learn, you know, sometimes it's just gratifying to know, hey, this person was just really looking for a one-time plan and they didn't want to spend more than X amount of dollars. And you know, to us, that's okay, great. That doesn't mean our system's broken. It doesn't mean we need to make any changes. It just wasn't a good fit. Other times it's they thought the fees were too high. They thought, you know, sometimes they thought the fees were too low, or there's just a miscommunication of services and whatever it is, it's just usually very helpful information for us and we can adapt our processes going forward based on that information. Anything is in particular uh, like what, what's the biggest surprise you've had of 
you know, why why a prospect didn't close that you probably never would have heard if Zoe hadn't passed it along? Um, that's a that's a good question. You know, we haven't had any major surprises where it's like, hey, I thought this person was literally about to sign an agreement with us, and then they just totally went with someone else for you know some crazy reason. We have had some where you know prospects will go out of their way to meet three or four times with us and really get into the weeds on their finances and you know, a lot of issues, and we can add a ton of value, and they seem super excited about it. And then like nine months will go by, and they just don't respond to calls or emails from us or from Zoe, and then they'll resurface like a year later, which is just so strange to me. But you know, people have crazy lives, and sometimes these things are top of mind, and then all of a sudden they aren't. So that that happens, you know, every once in a while. Those are the interesting ones, right? Where it's like these. People People still remember us after 12 months. And I don't know if it was a local thing, maybe they probably just hire us, right? But since it's online, it's a little easier to ignore an email than it is to ignore someone local. So as leads come through, is this just sort of the whole process? Like just at the end of the day, Zoe's queuing up prospects, they appear on your calendar, you do an approach call. Ideally, you get to do a second meeting for discovery. If that goes well, if that goes well, then Either they move forward to become a client or they don't, and either they tell you or Zoe, and then just on the next, you're, you're usually kind of to the end in, in, in two meetings one way or the other. Typically, um, we'll have a few scenarios where it takes more than two meetings. But yeah, I would say after a good introductory call and a good discovery meeting, we usually know after that second meeting, they're going to hire us or they're not going to hire us or they're not going to do anything in action, as we would call it. So after that second meeting, we have a really clear idea there. And then the Zoe folks, you know, tend to have the same idea. And so when they're, I guess, from their end, like when they're trying to match to you and, and send send prospects to you, like what's your differentiator in the Zoe system that gets you leads over other advisors? Like what's making you guys win in that system? So, so they actually had a webinar about a week ago on this exact topic. And that question came up, you know, advisors kind of asking, how can I get more leads and how can I make myself, you know, more attractive in the system? I think for us, it's, it comes down to two things. Number one is just the fact that we have multiple fee structures. So I would imagine, you know, probably half the advisors in there are larger, more established firms that just do AUM business. They don't do flat fee. They don't do hourly. So right off the bat, you know, if you've got prospect who knows that that's what they want and they're not comfortable with an asset-based fee, it's going to eliminate half the field right there. And then we're still in the race. So that's number one. It doesn't have to be about whether AUM fees are better or worse, but just literally there will be some human beings who don't want them because some people don't want any particular model. So when you're when you're different than the majority, then you carve out the majority the moment the prospect says, I only want this particular fee model. Exactly. And, and I will tell you, that's one of the shifts that I have seen in the industry in general in the last two years. I don't know if this is because of COVID and more remote firms, or if it's just my personal opinion, it's kind of the next generation of, of clients, like all the, the 20, 30, 40 year olds that have are starting to build wealth. But they are, they're asking a lot of really good questions around fee structure and value. And it's just becoming a lot more well known that the options are out there. So, you know, I think years ago, people just kind of assumed most advisors were asset based and, you know, maybe commission based and, and things like that. You know, now because of, you know, XYPN and and kind of the different marketing funnels out there. People know what flat fee is and advice only and you know all the different iterations of it, but it's popular. It's very popular on the with the high income earners. It's very popular with engineers and software engineers and, and kind of the tech folks that we work with. It just fits nicely and, and they like it a lot. So just offering that is a huge advantage for us. And so then you said there's a second factor as well. So what what else is differentiating for you for you in the Zoe system? 
The second one is the flexibility. So the fact that we're kind of a young, nimble, growing firm, you know, I we do a lot of meetings at night, we do a lot of meetings on weekends. We try to cater that to our clients as much as possible. And and honestly, you know, that's something I learned when I when I joined Charlie. He kind of taught me that right off the bat. And that was something he was doing already that I thought works really well. So if you think about it, we're working with most of our clients are still in accumulation phase, so they're still working. Maybe a two PM meeting on a Thursday, regardless of it's if it's remote or not, it may not be super convenient for them, right? So we do a lot of you know six seven PM meetings. Uh, after the kids go down, they'll want to do a meeting at eight thirty or nine and just do a quick planning call. We'll do weekends for you know some of our folks that are just working a lot during the week and they're burnout. They don't want to talk about financial planning on a Tuesday night. So <laughs> they'll do it on you know Saturday morning. So the fact that we offer that is also a major asset because prospects will mention those types of things in those introductory calls. And they'll mention those things to Zoe. And then immediately, uh, our firm will kind of pop up in the race there. Well, at the same time, right, I find it striking just just think about you know, for how many advisory firms have lead generation or contact or you know schedule a meeting with us forms on their website and may not have realized that they're losing a significant portion of prospects just because they didn't have an option for 9 p.m. one or two evenings a week and a 10 a.m. Saturday morning slot. And and that's to say, you know, I, I think on our Calendly still, like I'm pretty sure weekends are are blocked off on there, but we make it very clear on our profile that you know just ask us, and we can typically accommodate nights and weekends. All right, so you so you at least don't want to don't, don't want to just sacrifice nights and weekends by default, but you at least put it out there as a way to differentiate. Right, right, and and I think a lot of advisors might hear that and it might just scare them, like their calendars are going to start filling up. You know, in reality, it, it's not like I have meetings every single night and every single weekend. It just tends to be there's a small subset of of clients that it works really well for, and you know. Our our four or five meetings a year with that one client will just happen on Saturdays and it's convenient for them. So it works it works on both ends. But I'm struck at the same time as you're describing like what's what's differentiating you in the in the Zoe system. These aren't like radically massively different things than other advisory firms. Like just one one thing that matters to a client that is a differentiator. Like could you just charge me five thousand dollars and not one percent of five hundred grand? Or you know, just would you be open to meeting with me on a weeknight? And suddenly, like that's what determines that you get the lead versus some other firm that could turn into be a very valuable client. Along, I I completely agree. There is absolutely nothing from like a fee structure or service level that we're doing that other firms can't do. We have very high service. We try to keep our client count as low as possible and try to make sure none of our advisors have, you know, like 100 clients that they're working with. Other than that, you know, it's not rocket science as far as being available on nights and weekends, in my opinion. <laughs> it's just those little things go a long way. And when someone's interviewing two or three firms and two firms don't do that, or they're just very hung up on the, on the AUM piece with the fee structure, then it just immediately places us in an advantageous spot. When it just makes the point, right? In a in a very crowded marketplace, you you just need something that you show up differently on that matters to at least some subset of of clients, right? I, I had at least I, I'm sure it I'm sure it goes beyond him, but I had at least first heard this from Mark Debergian, who had made the point around just like being competitive with your advisory firm. Like you don't have to be better at everything you do; you just have to match the market everything you do 
except for one thing that you do differently or better than everyone else. Like you just need one thing that you can hang your hat on and you can win an incremental amount of business opportunities and in a you know crowded marketplace with the 120 million households in the US, like it really doesn't sometimes take the hugest thing to to show up differently, right? As you're saying, just, you know, we'll also charge you the fee as a fee and not a percentage of your assets that adds up to the same fee. Or, you know, we'll, we'll just have flexibility to meet with you on nights and weekends is sometimes all it takes to incrementally stand out in the crowded marketplace. It's pretty incredible to me how uh, I, I feel like the industry is stuck in a few places. And I think fee structure is, is one of them. So, you know, it's not to say that, you know, I think all fee structures have a purpose and they fit certain people. You know, certainly we have plenty of AUM clients where they would never want to manage their own assets. They don't know how they beg us to because they don't want to. So that's a good fit. But at the same time, if I'm talking to a prospect who's been a DIYer their whole life and they have Vanguard and, you know, if I can still work with that person and I don't have to do the hard sell on you have to transfer all your accounts and you have to do that all on day one before we do any planning with you, then you know, it's, it just makes it so much easier to work with a larger subset of people. Well, and I've, I've long maintained around this, like even in the context of different fee models, like it's not necessarily an, an A versus B, like, you know, AUM fees will die and flat fees will, will dominate them. Like I am very, very bullish on flat fee models and subscription models and the rest, but it's, it's just, it's a, it's a different strokes for different folks thing. Like it's just, there, there's clients with a lot of different preferences. And when, when we almost all only show up with one model, anybody who's doing anything different suddenly wins a lot of incremental business. Like we've seen that from some of the advice only firms that are growing very rapidly. And you know, we see it in XY Applying Network on advisors doing subscription fees as well. Like just the fact that you can talk to a prospect and have them say like, wow, I've never even talked to another advisor that would work with me that way because everyone else requires I buy their products or I give them my portfolio that anyone who wants something different, suddenly you might be the only advisor they talk to that does that, which means you have a, a very good chance of winning. Exactly. And it's it makes the conversation easier. I mean, I've always had trouble, you know, again, I before joining Charlie here, I didn't really have tons of business development responsibilities in any of my past roles. It was mostly portfolio management, investment operations, things like that, financial planning, of course. But having to have the conversation and just being able to make it easy for people to work with us has been extremely helpful. So I don't have to have this great call and then at the end of it, tell someone, yeah, that all sounds great. And if you want that, you know, move all your accounts over and that's the only way we'll work you. And oh, by the way, you better have $750,000 in assets under management. <laughs> like all these kind of terms that the prospects, you know, don't even really know what they mean. And it just, it's, it just provides negative connotations to them at the end of that call. So just avoiding that entire conversation and just keeping it about the client and making sure we're a good fit is, you know, is the key, in my opinion. So just what does this add up to at the end of the day? Like just when you go through all this, I mean, how, how many leads are you actually getting from Zoe? Like how often do they close? How many are turning into clients? Like just what's all this adding up to at the end of the day? Let's see. So I'll start with the uh, I'll start with the leads portion of it. So on the profile, you have a choice of of how you want to filter your leads. So they, I believe, it's by income and by assets, which the prospects will input when they when they do their profile. So I mean, theoretically, when we started, I had basically turned those down to the bottom. Um, I was just curious, like, okay, let's see what this looks like. It's a lot. <laughs> you get uh, your week fills up fast with with prospect calls. Which, I've had weeks which where means, I've which had means what, like how many multiple in a day and maybe 10 plus in a week, depending on the settings. Last Friday, I had four. So last 
Friday, all through Zoe Financial, I had four introductory calls with brand new prospects that found us because of that website. And and right now, my profile settings are higher on there just to kind of reduce the lead flow a little bit because as you're probably well aware, you know, we're onboarding a lot of clients right now as a newer firm that's growing very fast. So we're sort of in that tuck-in process with a large portion of our client base, which takes up a ton of time. So I've reduced mine, but we have new advisors with us that are still on that lower end. And you know, their calendars are full every single week with, with calls with prospective clients. And so like when when you talk about having four leads last Friday, like what what kinds of I guess lead quality, like what kinds of dollars or affluence are we talking about? Because you said like you've had the filters down, you've had the filters up, like of these four people on a Friday that are all half a million dollar prospects, or where do you where do you set those thresholds at this point? This particular day, all of them were, you know, so net worth wise, all above two and a half million, I think. One of them was six million. Income, these were all higher income folks. So I think the lowest was you know, there was a retiree on there with lower income, but the folks that were still working were all above like 325, 350. At least that's what they, they put in the profile. So obviously those are kind of round numbers that they just didn't put. All right. So like those are those are big numbers. I mean, that's a lot of dollars. And so so I, I I'm guessing then like, you know, you can have 10 plus in a big week. I'm I'm gonna guess that's not every week, but it sounds like this is a like 20 to 30 leads a month kind of thing that's flowing through. It, it easily can be depending on on the settings. We just brought on a new CFP. Uh, he's been working with us in a para planning role, but he's also you know building kind of his little book of clients, if you will. He's he's younger. He's based in Austin, Texas, which is obviously a you know hotspot for the country right now. He started working with clients independently, I think maybe not even a year ago with us, and he's already getting close to the point where he needs to slow the lead flow down. If that tells you anything, so he's had a ton of appointments. He's had a lot of success in closing these leads, and because of that, now. He's you know onboarding a lot of clients, <laughs> and his time is starting to get constricted a little bit. And so, like, do you have a sense as to what close rates are, or maybe you track it more directly? Like, just of all this lead flow, is this a, like? But still, at the end of the day, we only get one out of twenty. Or hey, they're handing it off to three advisors, and we usually get about one out of every three. Like, just what what percentage of these actually turn into business? So, at the end of the day, I, I think it works out to be about. 30%. So like 3 out of 10 end up being clients. Now, that number is really hard to quantify for a couple reasons. You know, number 1, there's a lot of people in that, you know, the 7 of the 10 that just don't make any decision. So it's not really like they're not hiring us and we like didn't do our job or couldn't close them. They didn't hire anybody. <laughs> right. It's like it's it's not it's not that you lost nobody won. <laughs> right. Right. So, you know, those folks don't hire anybody. They meet three advisors. They like what they hear, but they just don't do anything. There's some folks in there where, you know, this is pretty rare, but you'll have like kind of the no call, no show every once in a while where you have an appointment on the calendar and they don't answer. That is extremely rare. Like that maybe happens once a month these days. And, and typically we get them back on the calendar anyway. So that's maybe a small subset. And then there's, you know, a few of them where we have a great conversation and they just, they go with another firm and it's, you know, the firm was local, like the other advisor better, whatever that means, they'll go with the other firm. So, you know, it's, it's again, it's a tough number to just look at it and say, okay, we're only closing three out of 10, which some people might think is fantastic and others might think is not great. Well, I mean, relative to Zoe just makes things appear on your calendar and you know, right, like rough math, 20 to 30 leads a month can be six to nine new clients a month. And so just you're answering your phone and Zoe's making six to nine new clients a month appear. And the part I always go back to of why it's 
just in tremendous value for us is every single one of these people are people we would have never found without them. So without the SEO, without the marketing arm, without Zoe's outreach, without the algorithm, these people never find Capasso Planning Partners, right? So it's, I mean, it's just, it's pretty incredible from that standpoint. And so I guess I'm just wondering, like, what are typical, I guess, fees or assets for these clients? Because it sounds like you do, you do some of each, but just, right, I think there's a perception out there that, well, it's only going to be like the little clients at the end of the day. No one, no one comes with sizable portfolios through the internet to give you their life savings. <laughs> I mean, just like, is, is it actually adding up that way? Like what, what kinds of fees or, or assets or revenue flows do you see if you might be getting a half a dozen new clients a month? So to answer the first part of that question, it, we do have a lot of really good AUM clients from this service. So one of my larger clients came from it, $10 million plus in AUM, all through this system, through one person. We have a lot of other you know, 1 million, 2 million, 3 million comprehensive AUM type clients through the system. I'd say it's probably 70-30 on like flat fee AUM. So again, where I feel we have an advantage is... We can go into that conversation with the person who thinks that they want a flat fee and they're not comfortable with AUM. And you know, we don't even talk about AUM. We just kind of figure out what's best for them and move forward and try to attach a, a reasonable fee to that. So that 70-30, just to be clear, that's that's 70 on the flat fee side, 30 on the on the AUM side. So the, the majority of the folks that you're closing are on the flat fee side. That's right. If I if I had to guess, uh, those are those are rough numbers. But it sounds like isn't isn't necessarily like because AUM is dying or anything, but just because the literally the way you show up differently in Zoe is you have non AUM options, and so you get a disproportionate number of the non the non AUM flat fee inquiries in the first place. Exactly. What I have found in the process is you know clients or prospects typically they either really don't understand or know any of the fee structures, and it's just kind of a start from scratch conversation, or they are familiar with it and they know that they want flat fee or advice only or hourly or something like that. Pretty rare to get someone that's, you know, gung-ho on, yeah, you know, I, I want AUM, I don't want flat fee for whatever reason. So typically, you know, if they know what they want, it tends to be on the flat fee side. That's no problem for us. So we're, we're happy to talk with those folks. And so then, you know, the, the kind of key part to all this at the end of the day, like, what is this cost? <laughs> What do you what do you pay to Zoe to you know just have half a dozen new clients show up on your doorstep every month? Obviously, not not to belittle the sales process you have to go through, but you know at, at as you're showing at, at some point, just kind of a the good old fashioned Nick Murray game of numbers. Like if they're going to put ten, twenty, thirty leads on your calendar and you're converting about thirty percent of them, like if you do enough of the prospect calls that are good fits, you're going to get some. Exactly. So upfront, and, and I'll mention this just because so many of their competitors have different pricing models. So I think it's good just for apples to apples. Um, there's, there's no cost up front for us to be on the platform. So we're not paying for the leads, so to speak, up front. Um, no, one gets, no one gets paid until the advisor actually starts working with a client, which once again is helpful in aligning you know, Zoe's interests with the prospective client. So they're not getting paid to introduce them to us. They're not getting paid to so they don't they so the, thus all of the follow up work that Zoe does they don't get paid until the client closes exactly exactly and and furthermore on that front they don't you know they want it to be an ongoing relationship as do advisors uh, as you know you know I, I feel like we add so much more value over time which is why we typically don't do a ton of one time plans so you know again Zoe is kind of aligned there where 
if we have a client and we only work with them for a month, then then Zoe kind of did all that work just uh, you know, for a, one portion of the fee for one month. So once we actually do close a client, they have um, two different kind of referral solicitor fee structures there. For the financial planning flat fee folks, uh, it's 25% of the fee. So client pays us $100, 25 goes to goes to Zoe, 75 comes to the firm. For the AUM, it's similar. So for the first million, it's the, the same setup. Any assets over a million, that rate goes down to, I believe, 10 basis points. So it's a pretty significant decrease there. So if you're able to work with a larger client through the system, you, you do see some economies of scale and some breakpoints on the referral fee at over a million. And out of curiosity, just for Zoe, like, is it on the AUM fee? Is it is it twenty five percent of the advisor's fee or twenty five bips flat? Like, is it a percentage of what you charge, or just they set their bip schedule? It's basis points. Okay, so they're so you know duly noted for advisors that have you know if you have below average fees, that twenty five bips is going to is going to gobble up more of your fee. If you have a higher fee, it's going to gobble up less because Zoe's fee is fixed. The challenge for lower cost advisors is, you know, they they it costs them a higher percentage of their fee to do the business development. I guess the the flip side, at least for Zoe, is Zoe Zoe then has no incentive to send clients to high fee advisors, which they would if they charged a percentage, right? If it was a percentage, like oh, so basically, if we send all the money, to, if we send all the prospects to the advisors with the highest fee schedules, we get twenty five percent of a higher number, and then we make more money and. Then they would actually not want to refer to the low low cost advisors. So it's the 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 good news of it is it makes it lets Zoe be neutral in who they send to, and just you know as an advisor you have to bear in mind that business development and marketing is part of your cost structure when you set your fees. And, and that's for us. It's you know it's such a no brainer as a smaller firm for us because you know a we do not have the the scale to kind of go out and hire like a full-time chief marketing officer, right? So like our competition, if we're going up against a multi-billion dollar RIA, they probably have a chief marketing officer. They probably have multiple employees who are, you know, focused on business development and marketing and making the website look good and advertising and all these things where, you know, that's certainly not my area of expertise. Certainly not Charlie's, you know, we are, we're financial planners, we're investment managers, we're not, you know, marketing geniuses. <laughs> so I'm happy to hand that off and kind of let them do that for us as a partner. And then, you know, we just kind of get plugged in to, to do what we do best. Well, and it strikes me just at the end of the day, this is basically the same fee structure that a lot of the RIA custodians have had for the referral networks for a long, long time. Like about about 25% for the business development has been out there for a while. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking back even to... uh just when I got started originally in the life insurance world, the the old saying was there are finders, binders, minders, and grinders. The finders got the finders did the prospecting, the binders got the sale, the grinders did the planning work, and the minders serviced the clients in the long run. And and each of those got twenty five percent. So it was twenty twenty five percent for the lead, twenty five percent for the sale, twenty five percent for the plan, twenty five percent for the ongoing service relationship. That's right. It's funny you mentioned that because we uh, we were speaking with an advisor that was was thinking about joining us, and he's with a you know larger firm, and and that's sort of their model is just like that. They had different names for it, but essentially you had your hunters out there doing nothing but bringing in business, 
get paid that clip and then it's on to the next one. Then you got the advisors that are kind of working the relationship long term. And then you've got kind of the higher ups that come in for strategic planning and, you know, an investment meeting or an estate planning meeting. So it's an interesting model. So for us, we just dumb that down and say, you know, as far as marketing is concerned, we are happy to let them market on our behalf and do the SEO and do the technology. And then we'll just plug in when we can talk to these folks and, and try to add value for them. So now talk to us about, I guess, some of the other services. It sounds like this is not the only one that you have that you have used. You've clearly had some success here, but it sounds like you've you've used others as well, which means I'm assuming you you even have seen and can kind of compare across the ones you've used. So talk to us about the like what else have you done in the world of paid lead generation services? Yeah, um, I think I've tried them all. Honestly, I think between January of 2019 and now I have, or us as a firm, have been onboarded and worked with, um, I've got a list of, of six here, um, a couple of which we still work with. So we've done Dave Ramsey SmartVestor. Brewer Consulting was the very first thing I did when I started with Charlie back in January with Patrick Brewer, who I think you're familiar with. Smart Asset, Wiser Advisor, and fee-only network. Now we do still, we, we keep our subscription. We do fee-only network. I think there's other benefits there. We don't necessarily use them as a kind of a lead generation, so to speak. And then Harness Wealth, we recently got onto their platform and actually are going live uh, next week. Okay. So like, just t- tell us about each. Like, how's it, how's it going? Like, what, how do they work? How do they work? What's worked or not, or not worked for you? Obviously, you know, note for everyone, like your mileage may vary, right? Uh, you, you may not do as well with Zoe, you may do better with others, but just, you know, at least from your experience, like how do each of these work and what's worked for you or hasn't worked for you? And yeah, I so saw, I'll walk through those and, and I'll say, it's funny that I think very little aspects of the differences between these firms are what, in my opinion, makes it one of them work very well for us versus maybe another one not working well. So, you know, Dave Ramsey, SmartVestor, good starting point. So I, I, we signed up for them. I think it was like the first week I had kind of got my compliance stuff checked off. I was officially with Charlie, zero clients and trying to trying to bring in new business and, and, and build up a client base. So we started on SmartVestor, which is uh, you basically pay for a certain geographical region and then you get leads through there. Now, obviously, you if I recall correctly, I believe you end up paying more for, for the larger regions. So if I wanted every lead within 100 miles of Charleston, South Carolina, that would be a certain price point versus just saying, okay, I want leads that are within you know driving distance of downtown Charleston. And then any moment at any point in the day, that lead can come through via email. So that could be midnight, it could be 4am, it could be you know middle of the workday, doesn't matter. As soon as that prospective client is on the site and fills out a form, everybody in that uh, region gets gets the alert. And in in my recollection, they they keep it down to a certain number of advisors. So, you know, the prospect is not getting 15 advisor profiles sent to them. I think it's somewhere between three and five, depending on the area. And then it's it's a race. You know, you you try to call them right away. I, I remember like you know, being out shopping with my fiance and our and our baby, and like I'd get the alert and you know run out and try to make a phone call in the middle of the day on Saturday. And oh, because just in practice, right? Early bird gets the worm. Just it, whoever they talk to first, if they have a good conversation with the first person they talk to, they may or may not even take a second or third conversation. So if you're if you're not first in, your odds are very very low. You're getting it at all. All of the data that they actually provided us basically reinforced that. So if you get the if you get get there first, your chances of closing them are like 85% higher 
than having a second or third conversation. Calling versus emailing, you know, all of those different data points, they would send us these little PDFs and compare them. And yeah, you basically just had to call them first. So what would happen was these people with teams of, of biz dev employees are just sitting around waiting and that's all they do. So the second that lead comes in, they're going to call these people two, three, four times. The actual advisor is not having to do that. So you know, if you have like an LPL team on there and there's an advisor and he's got three or four people under him, immediate advantage. So for that reason, it was not incredibly successful. <laughs> hard, for me. You, hard for you to stay competitive because it's all about speed of response and you didn't have the resources to hire a person to sit around whose like sole job is just when a lead comes in, like you should be calling them within 120 seconds. That's right. That's and you know, quite frankly, not what I thought would uh, I would be doing with my career. Right. So I, it's not that I dread it. Um, I don't mind. No, I don't mind doing the calling. I, I enjoy being on the phone with folks and talking to people. But the cold call at 9 a.m. on Tuesday for something like that, when you know that they're getting four other cold calls, it's just it's tough. So that was not terribly successful for us, as you can imagine. I will say, I got my first client from there, and he was a pretty good sized client. It actually kind of worked out where he he lived right down the street from our office. We grabbed coffee. He had a whole lot of things that he needed to get done before the end of the year. And it it's you know, he's still working with us. It was a great fit. But that was the only client I got from it. And I, I think the leads were probably up in the, you know, hundreds, 150, 200 <laughs> by the time I uh, canceled it. Oh, so like you 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 got like one client out of a hundred to a hundred. Yeah. The close rate was pretty dismal. <laughs> Um, if I had to go back and calculate it. Because you had to be so fast out of, out of the gate and either you were or you weren't. Exactly. So, you know, I, I would look, I would go on there and with all the tools we use, I'll, I'll go on there and pretend to be a prospect and see what happens and kind of try to figure out what they're going through in the process. And, you know, it's, it's Edelman Financial and, and these, these huge firms that I'm going up against, right? So here I am, one person trying to kind of do the whole process. There's no way it would work. And I'm, I'm guessing... I'm guessing that probably has some level of regional variability, though, that just if you're in a dense metropolitan area, there's probably some very large firms that are just grabbing people within seconds of when they submit inquiries. If you happen to be in a, a less populated rural area, might not be a ton of leads, but there probably also aren't as many people calling on them. <laughs> so maybe, maybe maybe you get better odds. So we learned that quickly and then we expanded our lead area. So just for some some backdrop, you know, you, you the cost goes up as you expand that. So I think we at one point we went up to where we were getting leads anywhere up to like Asheville, North Carolina and down to Atlanta and that was costing like $800 a month I think. I mean, it was pretty significant. So kind of opposite to the Zoe kind of fee structure, our, theirs is everything up front and you could potentially never close a prospect and still pay the money. So that was tough. <laughs> and and thus and thus the framing here of right, like why you know why does Zoe? Why are you ending up with a thirty percent close rate on on Zoe and a one percent close rate on Smart Vester? It's like, well, when Zoe only gets paid when you close, they have a little more incentive to get you closed. When the service gets their dollars up front, right? I mean, if you're good at playing the system, I guess it works. I mean, the the contrast is that you said even with the large region, it was eight hundred dollars a month, but like, I mean, that's ten thousand dollars a year, like two or three good sized clients and that's actually cheaper than Zoe particularly since I guess you you pay this once and then you're done Zoe if you get the client they get the they get the percentage of the fee ongoing so I guess even by that basis like one sizable client through Zoe is actually more expensive than 
one out of 100 clients from SmartVestor on a flat fee basis. The caveat is just you have to deal with all the lead quality and the volume and the pressure and the fast response, or you have to spend more money to hire someone to answer the phone quickly, in which case, you know, good news, leads only cost $10,000 a year, bad news, $60,000 a year for the person to call on the $10,000 leads, just to be the first to respond and say, hey, I saw you submit an inquiry. Would you like to Would you like to schedule a meeting with Dan to learn more about what we do? That's right. And, and that's why I think for SmartVestor, it's you know, it's engineered. The bigger firms will do well on there. I, you know, we, we would have kind of study groups on there when I was early on with other advisors, and you know, they would build their entire practice on SmartVestor. But what I found was they had full time people doing the calls and the emails and the follow up and the marketing drips. And like you said, the math makes sense. You know, you could you could close one out of a hundred and pay you know five thousand a month if you're a big firm for all of these leads. But if, you know, if every one of those hundred has a few couple million in assets. That math checks out pretty quickly for the larger firms. For me, where that's half my rent <laughs> at the time, then that's tough to, to keep on an ongoing basis. Right. Well, and I guess that's the other distinction as well, is just just the sheer financial dynamics of upfront costs versus versus back-end costs. Like you don't have to literally you don't have to pay Zoe until you have revenue to pay Zoe. Because because it's back end based, it's a percentage of the revenue. Whereas a program like SmartFest, or just you have to have the dollars up front. So you know all the trade offs that go with that. You can scale flat fees, flat upfront fees more sometimes, but you take all the risk and you have all the upfront. It's exactly right. So you know for those reasons, again, I think a lot of firms do very well on there. For us, I guess I should say for me specifically, it was not a great fit. Brewer Consulting. So that was probably the first marketing or any, you know, I wouldn't call them lead generation. But that was a marketing piece that I did from the start and, and put kind of considerable capital in to just get up and running, get my LinkedIn up and running, get, you know, any kind of marketing channel and, uh, you know, white papers and all that kind of stuff going so I could start automating those processes. Because again, you know, I, I didn't have a team under me to kind of offset, offload those things too. So, so they were helpful. I would say again, the cost was a little prohibitive at the time for me. You know, we were doing Facebook ads. There was a monthly cost for them. I was just, just, just what did they do? I mean, like SmartFester, right? They've got their network, people who listen to Dave Ramsey and and go through Ramsey's website and and find a local advisor. So, just what did Brewer Consulting do for you? So, Brewer was more of a they would teach you how to do these things. So I would link up with their software engineers and they would help me, you know, put together a good list of Facebook ads on, you know, a social security white paper or a, you know, retirement spending analysis or something like that. So when people go on Facebook and they see that, my little video would pop up. They helped me get content going. I had, you know, I didn't really have any of that at the time. Once again, so kind of build, building building out the kind of building out the content marketing funnels and 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 sort of working like an agency in that context. Exactly. And automating those processes. So for me, the, again, the upfront cost was just too prohibitive at the time. So, you know, I had left my job, no clients, had some savings. For anyone that does that, you know, money's tight for as long as it takes to kind of get the client base up and running. So, you know, just having anything that was a pretty significant monthly cost up front where I wouldn't really see the benefits from it longer term was was just tough. So I stuck with them for probably six or seven months. And in, in fairness to them, you know, that was how it was pitched. And, and that is kind of their structure. Like they help these advisors set up those pieces so that you can get your own leads in a year or two using these automated processes that they help you set up. So I'm sure it would have worked long term, but it just it was too cost prohibitive for me at the time. And what kind of cost was it? 
I don't remember the exact amounts, but it was, you know, a significant monthly cost just to kind of be in the system and help have their professionals helping you. And then some of the one-off items that they would recommend also had their own additional costs. So, uh, you know, the Facebook was a a good example. Obviously, it costs money to go on there and kind of set up an ad structure and and things like that. So that was additive to their cost as well. That's where I kind of had to pump brakes and say, okay, I see the value here. And if I had the endless piggy bank, I would happily do it. But it, you know, I hadn't seen any prospective clients from it after seven months. And it just was just way too cost prohibitive for me. Okay. So just one of those one, I mean, I, I've, uh, I've long preached it just even having lived the business of, of building out, you know, content marketing platform, right? Building out through blogging, just, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time for, for nurturing before it starts really moving. And so, yeah, I get it. Like, you know, the brewer system might, might have a good, you know, a, a good humming, uh, return as your Facebook pixel gets attuned and your retargeting starts ramping up and you refine who you're going after with seminars or webinars or whatever you're doing. But that could take you six months or 12 months or longer before the system's really humming. In the meantime, just there's a cost to pay marketing professionals to get that up and running for you. That's exactly right. So, you know, long term, and I saw it work for other advisors that had been with them longer. So, you know, there's there's one guy in particular I still follow on LinkedIn. He's out in California. He works at biotech guys. And, you know, he has this whole system set up where he puts these, you know, he puts great content up on estate planning and asset protection for anyone going through a major biotech liquidity event. And, you know, it works for a lot of reasons and he keeps it consistent. So all of that was kind of from the brewer system and, and it works well, but I just didn't have the, uh, the wherewithal or the the funds to stick it out at that time. Okay. So from there, so what was next? Yeah. Smart you, asset. Did, you were just going through all of them. <laughs> so smart asset was next. So smart assets, uh, smart advisor program. That's right. Smart. Yeah. I think at the time it was called smart asset, I guess, smart advisor now. And then wiser advisor. I kind of jumped onto both of those at the same time. So now again, this is like a third fee structure I'd been introduced to where you pay up front, but you pay per lead and you can pay based on the type of leads you want. So you can only say, I want the million dollar plus leads, which cost more, but theoretically you get less of them. So you know, there's that route. You can kind of go the whole way and say, I want to get every lead and including the ones that might cost $50 a lead up to the ones that might cost $750 a lead. So, And was that actually typical cost? Like cost could be anywhere in that range? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure it's changed in the last year or so. But at the time, I believe that was, you know, might have been 125 or 150 bucks for a, a smaller-ish lead, like someone with 200K in assets and you know minimal income. And I think it was up to 750 or higher for like a, a multi-million dollar lead. And, and really all that means is the person put that on their profile. And that's where that number comes from. Kind of a common theme there. It's less competition. So someone plugs all that information in, goes out, you know, you'll have, I think, three advisors that, that get it in the area. Same type of competition with smart investors. So I'm going up against, you know, Edelman Financial and their army of <laughs> planners and biz dev people. It's a, it's a race to the phone. So, you know, as soon as you get that lead, you, you got to call them and be the first one in the door. And the stats that I saw on that side were probably even more convincing that you had to be the first one. So a lot of times, like they just wouldn't even respond to the second or third person. And the, the thing that got me about all of these we've talked about so far, with exception to Brewer Consulting, because it's not really a lead gen, is you still go into that call and it's a cold call, right? You're calling these people out of the blue. They, they may or may not have even seen this email that has your profile in it. They could have been filling out 
you know, a mortgage calculator or something else and clicked on a few buttons and, oh, here we go. There's an advisor match. Like that was my experience when I would actually get any of these people on the phone. So a lot of times it's, you know, it's complete shock that you're calling. It's complete cold call. Very fortunate to have another discussion with them, regardless of how good the call goes. (laughs) So, you know, that part of it was frustrating too, where you pay for a lead, you get them on the phone. That's, you know, a win. But then it's just, you immediately realize it's probably not a good fit um, or it's just really tough to move them forward in the process. And again, like I'm thinking in the, in the math overall, I mean, just if I'm, you know, if, if I'm paying whatever is $200 for a decent sized lead and, and I've got to talk to 20 or 30 of them to get, to get one client, like I still, at the end of the day, may only be out five or $6,000 in leads. And if I get one good client, like I can make that back immediately and still long-term, I guess, pay, pay less than Zoe, right? Like a, a million dollar client to Zoe is going to cost me $2,500 a year, as long as the client's with me. If that, if that client's with me for a long term, I could literally pay tens of thousands of dollars to Zoe, but I got to take all the bad leads to get to the good ones. I've got lower close rates, faster time pressure, all, all those dynamics that you were highlighting before come right back into play. Like, I mean, again, that's, that's just part of the trade-off. So if you've got the dollars up front and you're ready to do the hustle or hire someone to do the hustle, you're, you're probably more profitable by playing this game and winning it. But you have to play the game and win it with upfront commitments. Exactly. And, and you know, again, I, I don't mind being on the phone. I, I love, you know, I love meeting with clients. I love having those conversations, but the cold call aspect, you know, I think everyone could admit it's not the most fun thing in the world. So when, when your success kind of makes or breaks on the cold call from the start, it's just a tough place to be when you've got minimal clients and you're kind of counting every penny as you, you know, cause I would have days where I'm in the office and, you know, I go to the bathroom and I come back and I have three emails and it's, you know, three different leads from, from smart asset, which is great. But even in like that two minute time span, I probably I'm I'm already not the first person to call them, and you know that might be like a thousand bucks on the credit card that day, <laughs> just from you know just from paying for the leads up front. So that that's also just really tough in the early days. Now for a big firm, you know, like you said, that can that math can work out really quickly. If I'm a large firm and I've got a five person business development team, like I just tell all of them not go to the bathroom at the same time and I set I send that email to a shared email address that all of them use and like someone's going to see it within 30 seconds and pick up the phone. And they have all those metrics, you know, like they have to call that lead within 30 seconds or I'm sure they get dinged and you know, it's it's just a completely different league from where I was operating at the time. So that was smart advisor. So then you said you also tried out wiser advisor. That's right. Very similar to smart asset. So you pay up front, you get the leads. Slight improvements with wiser advisor where I you tend to know a little bit more about the prospect before you talk to them. So you at least know they were looking for estate planning advice. They were looking for tax planning advice. Like that was part of their input system. So I would get the email, I'd get the lead and I knew that at least going into the call. So I could say, hey, I saw you were looking for estate planning. You know, we certainly help with that and kind of go down that rabbit hole. So slight improvements. But again, it's still a cold call. It's still a cold email. And and if you're not first, then there's no chance. So similarly to Smart Asset, that was just a tough, that was a tough one for me. The lead flow there was not as high. So I actually kept my profile active on there until pretty recently. I think like earlier this year, I finally turned it off. But yeah, that was that was the success there. And I don't think we actually brought in a single client from there in the, in the year or so that we were on the platform. And 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 like pricing similar, just pay per lead and, and similar kinds of costs to what 
Smart Advisor was charging. That's right. Yep, you you would pay per lead, and um, if I recall correctly, you could choose like the different tiers of leads that you wanted. You'd get a lead alert. You get your the name and email and phone number and best time to call, and then you shows a category of what they were looking for, which you know in our case it just said financial advisors, so not nothing too informative there. You'd get their location down to like a city and zip code, size of current portfolio with very vague kind of brackets. So this one says one to three million. What do you need help with financial planning and investments? And then there's an additional details field that the client, the prospect can fill out if they want to. So some would fill that out more detailed, others just leave it blank. And that's it. So once you get that, you know, the second it comes in, you got to jump on the phone and, and try to give them a call as soon as you can. And then what about fee-only network? So fee-only network, we just pay an annual fee to have profiles up on there. And you know, I, I'm no tech expert, but from my understanding, the, the SEO of just being being associated with that website and then kind of linking it in with our website and, and any marketing we would ever do, which we plan to do in the future, is very beneficial from what I've seen and heard from other advisors. So for us, that's an extremely minimal cost. We get all of our advisors up there, our profiles in their various areas, and we'll probably keep that up for the foreseeable future. And what's the cost for fee-only network? I say it like for the full year, maybe six hundred or so dollars for the profile. Okay. Oh, so like very very different pricing costs than so than the six six hundred and ninety six dollars for at the time we were setting up three for profiles. Um, so for three profiles. So yep. two two hundred twenty three bucks profile. Yep. For the year, so very you know very cost friendly there. But again, and and they are the first ones to say this. I don't think of them as a lead gen service. They do have, I believe, like a Find It Advisor site or portion on their website. But we see them really just as a benefit from an SEO standpoint. And and just in practice, have you gotten any leads from them? Like that has it shown up with any? We got one. It was actually kind of funny. We we signed up and we weren't. I didn't know we were live on the website yet. Like we hadn't even paid our invoice yet. They set up our profiles and then we we ironically like got a lead that afternoon. And then you know obviously we signed up the next day and it was fine. But it was kind of funny because we got that email and I'm like, oh, I guess that's what that looks like. <laughs> did it did, did it close? It did not. <laughs> oh. I wish. <laughs> it's a great success story. I know, I know. One for one. And I think the last one that you had mentioned was Harness Well. That's right. That's the newest one for us. So we've been on, we've been doing the onboarding process. They had a, you know, very strict and lengthy due diligence process that we worked through, made it on the platform. So my understanding there, um, we actually reached out to them last year. And at the time, we were just, we were too small from an asset based standpoint, didn't have enough clients and all that kind of thing. I reached out a few months ago and just let them know we've had this trajectory of growth. We, you know, we now have advisors and some hotspots that clientele may appreciate. And we do a lot of flat fee planning. So I think that was the piece that they were happy to hear about because I think they work with a lot of very large AUM focused firms. So once again, there was a huge need there for these people going on. They have you know liquidity events coming up. They are a tech employee for an upcoming IPO company. They don't have AUM to manage, so that eliminates those folks. And maybe they don't want to pay some really really high flat fee <laughs> right out of the gate. So we we fit in nicely there, where you know our minimums are probably a lot smaller than some of those firms, and hopefully you know we'll have the same success there that we're seeing on Zoe. And and pricing wise, how does the how does cost work for getting leads or getting clients? Very similar to Zoe, no upfront costs, and then just the twenty five percent of the uh, as like the referral solicitor fee for an ongoing client that we're working with. So it'll just come down to you. Know, 
you'll see whether they can produce similar lead quality and and similar flow but you're 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 not at risk unless they can actually make it happen that's right and again i, I see it as a great fit for us because they have that similar structure where they have the team in place to kind of court i think they call it like the concierge but they court the prospect through the entire process so we get plugged in once we get matched and then it's they're incentivized to help that person make a decision one way or the other just like the zoe financial folks are so just what is all of this added up to at the end of the day like can you just talk to us about what's the what's the size of the firm now like what have you guys managed to to grow to when I, I think you said you were essentially starting from scratch about three years ago. Yeah. So, uh, you know, mine personally, uh, you know, technically on day one, I had, I had zero clients. I guess I really had one. One of my best friends has, has been a client for a long time and he was technically a client at my old firm, but he was, was literally my best friend, one of my good friends from college. So, you know, he came with me, which was not a big deal. So he was my first client. As of right now, I'm personally lead advisor for 68 relationships. And I would say probably 80% of those were from, from Zoe. And I was going to say on, on, a, on an AUM basis, I don't know if you measure that by AUM or, or by revenue, if a lot of them are flat fee, because you're getting a lot of lead flow from flat fee. We call it asset equivalent in-house just as an easy way to track it. So we basically turn it into an AUM number, even though, you know, because our flat fee business is ongoing. So it's not typically one-time plans. So that the assets, that that helps us with that number. So for me, that's about, I would say, 49 million, roughly, where I'm lead advisor. Very cool. And so, so I guess, and so just that's, that's driven mostly by Zoe. So call it the neighborhood of 40 or 50 million over the span of three years came from, came from Zoe. That's right. That's right. And you know, as much as we've talked about flat fee, you know, there is a lot of good ongoing, what I would call it comprehensive clients where we're also managing assets in-house that those came from Zoe as well. So we focus on flat fee a lot. It's kind of like the new and upcoming fee structure and something that we like to do. But for us, honestly, that all started because we meet these younger clients who we know will be very good long-term clients who most likely will want us to manage money for them. But you just have to start with a kind of a low, comfortable flat fee because if they have student loans or if they just, you know, they don't have any assets to manage yet, there's still a lot of ways we can help them. And that fee structure just makes so much sense to us. But it's, we do have a lot of good AUM clients through Zoe as well. So I, I want to make sure I harp on that a little bit. So help us give a, with a little bit more context of just your, your journey, your background, like just what was it that led you to starting, starting your practice your, from scratch? Three years ago, I I've always been in the fee only space. I didn't know what that was coming out of college. I graduated in 2010, and you know I spent a full summer sending my resume to basically any single company that I thought had anything to do with finances or investments or anything like that. So everything from Northwestern Mutual to you know the solo advisor uh, down the street at the time. So got lucky, landed at uh, Morris Financial in uh, here in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. That was kind of like the formative years of my career. So right off the bat, I figured out this world of, of fee-only financial planning and working directly with individuals, not having to push products, not having to cold call because uh, certain interviews I had up to that point, you know, I'd have one or two interviews and I'd, oh, this place is a great fit, great culture. I love the people. 
And then the third interview, it's okay. I need a list of you know three hundred people you know and their phone numbers and emails. <laughs> eventually, that eventually that friends and family network question comes. Why do you need that list? So, and I literally I sat down and did it one night, and it, it took me getting to about like the hundred and seventieth person before I was like the light bulb went off. I'm like, why am I doing this? Like, obviously, I know what they're going to ask me to do with this information. That's not really what I'm interested in doing. So, you know, kindly said that that job was was not for me and, and didn't go through with that interview process. Got really lucky to land at Morris Financial. So got to learn the ropes there. I worked with Charlie, who's my business partner now. I actually met him at that role. So he had left shortly thereafter. I stayed there and was, I was sort of able to work my way up the ranks a little bit through some turnover, which was extremely fortunate for me. So I was able to do a lot of things that most... 20-something-year-olds at firms would not be able to do, helping place trades, you know, being in client meetings, doing a lot of like investment analysis type work on the portfolios and, and working with the principal of the firm you know, directly on a day-to-day basis because it was a small shop. So that shaped my entire experience of just knowing this, this fee-only world was definitely for me. And I've really, I really loved it. Ended up going very briefly to another firm here in town that sort of pivoted into more of a software, technology, financial wellness kind of firm. So I was there for a little while. And then when they made that pivot, the job role would have been, okay, now instead of working with our RAA clients, you're going to go into these employers and kind of help everyone with their 401k choices and help everyone with their financial planning questions. So like hundreds of people in a day (laughs) type thing, which was not really for me either. So then I landed at another firm here, which was based in Charleston, but the clients were all across the country. There wasn't really a local presence and they had a a niche with uh, dentists. So every single client for the most part was a a dentist that owned their own small practice. This firm was significantly larger, probably like half a billion dollars or more in assets under management, had a very unique portfolio management and investment philosophy that was that was cool to learn and, and help out with while I was there. And then I was able to finish the CFA while I was there as well, which was kind of a huge turning point for my career. So once I did that, that kind of gave me the confidence to deep in my mind, I always wanted to go out and either start my own business or grow something from the ground up with somebody. And once I passed the CFA, I knew that, you know, okay, I have the credentials. I'm slowly getting the experience. Uh, by that point, I had had enough experience to feel comfortable going out on my own. And then in my last year at that job is when it really just started to sink in that, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make this move. And now I just got to figure out how logistically am I going to literally go and start my own RIA by myself from scratch? Am I going to join somebody? Am I going to go to a kind of a plug-in aggregator type RIA? And I did those interviews and kind of figured out what I liked and what I didn't like for probably a full 12 months, <laughs> which just seemed like forever. I just came back to Charlie, who had kind of courted me through this entire process. And I realized it was, you know, it just made so much sense to link up with him. He was growing really fast. He needed to hire people. Our expertise, you know, he's a, he's a really good CFP, you know, one of the brightest financial planners I know. And then, you know, I could come in with the CFA and be a good complement there. It just worked out perfectly. So we fi- I finally made the decision to do it. And, and I never looked back from that point. So I guess the the challenge and the caveat was you were at a firm that was in its own niche with dentists who was bringing people in through the dentist niche, which wasn't your thing. So if you were leaving and, and starting over, like you, you had to literally leave and start over. Yeah. And I felt like... So, so that firm had been through a, a chaotic kind of transition succession plan before I got there. So there was an older founder. Most of the clients in the firm were his friends and his longtime clients. He sold the firm 
for whatever reason, it was just a, it was a very long drawn out kind of succession to the new owner. I worked with the new owner and get, even despite the size of the firm, there was, there was four employees. It was, it was the owner, it was myself, and we had an operations associate and an administrative assistant. So my opinion, long-term, the owner, new owner was relatively young. I just didn't see a ton of upward mobility there long-term. There wasn't new clients coming into the door all the time. It was a pretty established client base. Most of them were you know, getting close to, if not already retired, selling their practices, getting into withdrawal mode. So, you know, I spent almost four years there, but I, I just didn't think the long term was was a good fit for me at that point. And I just needed a little more freedom and kind of flexibility to work with clients the way I wanted to and kind of, you know, start something that I could just have buy in with and be, you know, really happy to do every single day. And working with, you know, dentists across the country for whatever reason just wasn't putting a huge smile on my face when I woke up every morning. So as you've gone out your own, your own and built over the past few years, what surprised you the most about building your own advisory business? Uh, you know, I would say just the ups and the downs, which everyone talks about, but I, I just don't know if you really can figure it out until you've done it yourself is just, you know, one day can literally be like the greatest, happiest day, just I guess as any business owner can see, you know, I might sign a great client, have two really good meetings, have a client who's just super thankful to work with us. And then the next day, you know, you might have three or four prospective client calls that are just terrible. It's just like <laughs> the constant ups and downs and the roller coaster of emotions are very difficult to handle. And I think it takes a very unique type of person um, to do that. And I don't think that's just in our industry. I think that's probably for any entrepreneur out there. And just in practice, how do you handle it? How have you coped with it or manage it? I am um, exceedingly optimistic, <laughs> for better or for worse. It takes a lot to kind of put me down and put me in a bad mood. I, you know, I, I feel like I, I have a fortunate life. I, I love what I do. I'm typically a pretty happy person. So it takes a lot to like put me in a bad mood, which I think gives me a little bit of an advantage. And I just try not to let any of that stuff get to me. So, you know, part of, you know, one of the few downsides to getting most of your business digitally is you do, you know, I don't want to call it turnover in the sense it's not really turnover where you have a client and then you lose them, but it's just such a different process to get those clients than it, it is in person, right? Because when you have a warm referral and they come into the office, you know, if that meeting goes well, they're going to sign up with you typically. Um, and you just don't have to deal with a ton of rejection and you don't have to really chase them a lot. At least that had been my experience in my the past firms. And it's just the complete opposite digitally. You have to you have to work really hard to earn that trust up front. You have to do a lot of work up front before you kind of get paid for any of it. You, you know, just the way the process works. We do a lot of planning and a lot of discovery meetings. You know, I'm getting on planes to go see people. I'm I'm doing last minute trips to you know Atlanta and Austin, Texas, and anywhere else just to go try to close a good prospect. It's a lot of that. It's a lot of upfront costs. But you know, at the end of the day, it's we're in a very fun business. We're helping people and we're doing it the way we want to do it. So we have clients we love. There's no one on my client list. And I think everyone in our firm can say this where we see that meeting on the calendar and we dread it. That just doesn't really happen. We try to sort that out from the beginning. So we, we actually you know enjoy working with every single one of the clients that we're working with. And just really quickly, you said like there's even trips to see prospects to to go out and close prospects. So is part of that an extension of Zoe? Like, do you have Zoe situations where like 
you get a good lead, but they're halfway across the country. And if it's going well enough, you'll get on a plane and fly to see them to, to try to close the business. Yeah. And that's where, you know, I'm definitely a risk taker and, and that's where the hunger kind of comes in. You know, if we've had a few instances where a prospect for whatever reason has, has met with three or four advisors and just hasn't found a good fit, Zoe will kind of plug us in and they know we're flexible in those situations. So I, st- I still do this, but especially early on in pre-COVID, you know, we might get that call on a Wednesday and it's, hey, you know, I know this is kind of crazy timing, but if you can see them on Friday, you know, it sounds like it's a really good fit. And, you know, as long as it seems worth it to us, I was happy. I was happy to do that, especially at a time when I was, you know, when the client list was still pretty small. Um, it was worth... Well, it's not like I had any other existing clients to meet with on Friday, so... Exactly. So, you know, it's hectic. I still remember some of those days, you know, I had one time on the, you know, on the, the not successful side and we drove up to, uh, to Raleigh, which is about a four and a half hour drive from here, drove up, met some prospects at a restaurant, had a really nice lunch with them and you know, drove back same day, found out on the drive back that they hired someone else, but they loved us and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know, days like that can be a little, a little tough, but yeah, you know, that's, that was us kind of trying to go the extra mile and not letting location be a barrier for someone who we thought might be a really good client long-term. So what was the low point for you on this journey? Boy, I would say, you know, early on, just getting from zero to, to like five or 10 is really difficult. I think this that stays true, even if you kind of grow the numbers up a little bit. Going from 100 to 200 clients as a firm, you know, that's a little bit more fun of a journey. Getting from zero to 10 is really tough because every time you you get the no or you, you don't close a, a, someone you think is a good fit, it's it hurts. You don't have that many clients and you think you can grab somebody, start counting that as revenue and you start saying, okay, this is going, you know, this is starting to go well. And then, you know, they don't sign on for whatever reason, you're back to square one. That part is extremely difficult. And then just the timing, um, I can't stress this enough, but I just see so many ebbs and flows with how these things work. And, And obviously COVID was probably the largest ebb and flow where there was three months there where not one person across the country really wanted to talk about their finances with anybody. Everyone was just sitting tight, kind of doing nothing. So, you know, that was early on in in the journey for us. And that was a scary time for me personally. And thankfully, once the market started to rebound and people got a little more comfortable talking about financial planning, it was like the floodgates just opened up and the calendar was full for two straight months with prospective clients. So just being able to survive those ebbs and flows and just know that, you know, even if times are tough, there will be that good day or that good week where you might you know, you might sign two clients in a day, right? And then it's you go a month or two and you don't have a ton of success. Then it happens again. And that, that's kind of what my journey has, has been like up to this point. Anything you wish you'd done differently? Like just as you look at back at how it's gone and like, what do you know now you wish you could tell you from a couple of years ago as you're getting ready to take the leap? Yeah. You know, it would be easy for me to look back and, and look at all the money I spent on some of those programs we talked about and think of it as kind of a sunk cost. And, you know, in a way it might be because, you know, on paper, I didn't get a ton of clients or have a ton of success in any of those programs. But I think what those programs did was open up my mindset to how this kind of digital client acquisition could work. And I had not experienced anything like that in my 
prior work um, with any of the firms we were working with. So it was a completely new concept. So I, I kind of credit it in a way to opening me up to the Zoe Financials of the world and saying, okay, this this can literally build our practice. Um, it has, and not just with clients. Like we've we've literally added advisors in places in the country, and we've gone out on a limb to do that because we're that confident that they will have constant pipeline of of kind of local uh, prospective clients through Zoe. So it's transformed not just clients I'm working with on a lead advisor type basis, but us as a as a company. That's why you go on our website and there's you know, there's 14 profiles there now instead of two. So what advice would you give younger, newer advisors who are, are getting getting started, getting launched? You know, number one, I would say, and again, this, this goes back to people's personalities and, and just like who's a risk taker and who's not. But, you know, I certainly did not have six months of living expenses saved up. I probably didn't do it by the book. I definitely took some chances and took some risks, but I, I feel strongly that that's the only way you kind of get to the place that you want to go. You have to make some uncomfortable decisions. I, you know, I have so many things I could think back on and, and think, man, that was that was an uncomfortable experience. That was a tough phone call. That was a tough meeting, and all of that just kind of gets you to where you want to go. So take the risk, you know, take the step to to go out there, put yourself out there, and and also I would say try to try to have flexibility. So, you know, early on, I, I think it's really tough to go out and start your own firm and immediately say, okay, I'm, I'm only working Monday through Thursday, nine to four, and I'm not going to do meetings on Fridays or weekends. And I totally get like work-life balance. I mean, like I have a two and a half year old. That was one of the major reasons I did want to start my own company and, and have the flexibility there. You know, ironically, I, I work way more now than I ever have at any point in my career, but I have the ability to, you know, be with him in the mornings and go home and walk the dog at two o'clock if I have to, and just have a more flexible schedule, you know, versus if I was kind of an employee at a larger firm where I would just be working the firm hours and you know, it'd be a much more kind of corporate experience. So go out there and take that risk and take that chance and just be confident that it will get you to where you want to go uh, as long as you as long as you put in the work to get there. So what comes next for you as you're closing in on 50 million of asset equivalent and 68 client relationships, which usually starts making it pretty busy from just a volume of clients to service? So right now, you know, literally as we speak, we are we're trying to shift the firm a little bit where it, before it was basically Charlie kind of working with his clients and me working with my clients and you know same for some of the other advisors that have joined us as we grow we know that that's not a very at least in our minds not a super sustainable model so we're trying to get a little bit more of a, a team oriented approach where we're going to have different kind of expert areas i'll be plugged in as sort of a, a CIO investment focused role with a lot of the clients of the firm not just the ones i'm working with directly basically going down that route. So building it out a little more traditionally where we're going to, you know, we just brought on a paraplanner, which was a huge pain point for us until recently. You know, when you're onboarding 30 new clients in a couple months, just getting the data into Money Guide Pro and eMoney can take hours. Um, so we finally have a, a good paraplanner that we, that we brought on last week. And it's already, it's making such a difference. I mean, it saves me hours every single day and same with all of our other advisors. So just little additions like that is is in the near term and just trying to make this a scalable business so that we can continue to service clients the way we like to and be really personable and flexible, which is you know, the reason we've gotten to this point and not, you know, not abandon that just because we get larger. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and one of the themes always comes up is just the, the word success means different things to different people. And so you know, you're on this wonderful path for success for the firm and, and 
incredibly rapid growth with you know the the next generation of lead generation tools that are out there so like the the business is doing very doing very well and successful but how are you defining success for yourself at this point yeah you know you know for me it's i kind of go back to that analogy of, of of waking up happy every day so you know there being in the spot that we're in now and just doing what i love every single day and having the flexibility that it's something I literally think about every single morning and, and will never take for granted. So especially in our world of just the kind of finance investment world in general, you know, I have a lot of good friends and colleagues that that work a lot of hours and they're in the office all day and they're stressed. And I'm just incredibly fortunate to have helped forge this path um, for our company where we all work very hard, but we just don't have that culture. You can go home and walk the dog when you need to. You can take a day off and take a breather and recharge your batteries a little bit. That is just so important to me. And it's something I literally will never take for granted. And I'm, I'm thankful for every single day. So that's that's where I go for uh, when it comes to success. So it's not necessarily the fewer hours. Because I think you said you're you're working more now in this context than you were before. But the 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 flex the flexibility of the hours, if there are going to be more of them. That's right. You know, typical night for me. I, you know, we we put Kingston down, and you know, the computers open up, and you know, I'm working on the couch for a couple hours, and you know, same thing early in the morning, six seven a.m. We're working a lot more. We're just it's flexible. So we're scheduling so much easier and just, you know, being with my family and, you know, being able to have somewhat of a life outside of the office is, I'm just extremely thankful for that. Very cool. I love it. Thank you so much, Dan, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Uh, this is great. Thank you so much for having me. I, I hope this is helpful for any of the advisors out there. I, I think it will be, you know, that, that pain of how do you get going with prospects when you're, when you're getting started is challenging for anyone. And I think even for Many advisors who've been in it for a long time, you know, business development outside of the passive flow of referrals is still a challenge. So you've, you've given a, a lot of ideas for a lot of advisors about other, other pathways to explore. Great. Well, thank you again for, for having me. This was wonderful. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the member section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.